Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey, pelvic people. Welcome back to an article by Leeming, Alberts, and a familiar name from last episode, Stooch. This article is on European guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of pelvic girdle pain. We know low back pain is a major health problem within the U.S., and this article notes it's also associated with a lot of costs within healthcare utilization, work absentees, and general disability. They define low back pain as pain between the 12th rib and the gluteal fold, and then they define pelvic girdle pain as pain experienced between the posterior iliac crest and the gluteal fold, particularly in that vicinity of the SIJ. They know that this pain may radiate to the posterior thigh and can also occur in conjunction with or separately in the symphysis. So important to note that diagnosis of pelvic girdle pain is typically reached after the exclusion of lumbar causes. So the objective of this project was to increase consistency in the management of nonspecific low back pain across countries in Europe. They've published about four different guidelines before on pelvic girdle pain and acute and chronic low back pain management. So the aim of this particular guideline was to promote a realistic approach to improve the diagnosis and treatment of pelvic girdle pain by one, providing recommendations on the diagnosis and clinical management of pelvic girdle pain, two, ensuring an evidence-based approach through the use of systematic reviews and existing clinical guidelines, three, providing recommendations that are generally acceptable by all health professions in all participating countries, and four, enabling a multidisciplinary approach, stimulating collaboration and a consistent approach between healthcare providers. So clinically, we're trying to figure out what is the most optimal diagnostic process for patients with pelvic girdle pain, and what's then the most effective treatment for reducing pain and improving disability in patients with pelvic girdle pain. So this study goes into multiple different studies and their epidemiologic findings for pelvic girdle pain and low back pain. Given the limited amount of prior research, it did seem challenging to nail down hard and supported evidence on some of these things. One major conclusion I felt important to include was their findings on pelvic girdle pain risk factors. So risk factors for developing pelvic girdle pain during pregnancy are most probably a history of previous low back pain and previous trauma to the pelvis. And then there was slight conflicting evidence, so one study, against the following risk factors, pluripara and high workload. So pluripara is having given birth to multiple children, not necessarily having twins or triplets. And then there is an agreement that non-risk factors are contraceptive pills, time intervals since last pregnancy, height, weight, smoking, and most probably age, although one study does report that young age is a risk factor. No studies have been published on the risk factors for the non-pregnant population to develop pelvic girdle pain, or which women or men are at risk for continuing to have pelvic girdle pain. So then let's talk exam procedures for diagnosis of pelvic girdle pain. In the studies where the exam procedures of pregnant women are described, 
a combo of methods for diagnosis was used. Inspection of walking, posture and pelvic tilt, palpation of ligaments and muscles, tests for a locked SIJ, pain provocation tests for the SIJ and the symphysis. The early studies focused more on the inspection and the palpatory findings, whereas later studies focused more on pain provocation tests, probably just due to that higher reliability and specificity of those latter tests. The pain provocation tests with the highest reliability and most frequently used for SIJ pain are the P4 thigh thrust test and the Patrick's Faber test. For pain in the symphysis, the tests that are most reliably used are palpation of the symphysis and the modified Trendelenburg test. For pain in the symphysis, the tests are palpation of the symphysis and then that modified Trendelenburg test used as a pain provocation test. So what's the clinical recommendation here? Most of the evaluated tests and all of the chosen tests have a very high specificity indicating that if they're negative, it's likely that the patient does not suffer from pain in the pelvic girdle. The sensitivity is, however, lower, so it's recommended to perform all the tests not to rule out pelvic girdle pain if one test might be negative. A gold standard test is lacking, so validity is kind of hard to evaluate. The following tests are recommended for clinical exam of pelvic girdle pain. I'm gonna break it up into a couple different categories. So for SIJ pain, posterior pelvic pain provocation test, or that P4 thigh thrust, Patrick's Faber test, and palpation of the long dorsal SIJ ligament, and the Gainsay-Lenz test. For symphysis pubic pain, palpation of the symphysis, and that modified Trendelenburg test of the pelvic girdle. And then a functional pelvic test would be the ASLR test. It's strongly recommended that a pain history is taken with special attention paid to pain arising during prolonged standing, walking, or sitting. As with literally any other pain, ensure that the pain is actually in the pelvic girdle. The patient should either point out the exact location or preferably indicate the painful area on a pain location diagram. So we all had those patients with low back pain where it's actually hip pain or vice versa. For imaging, imaging of the SIJ is mainly based on the diagnosis of sacroiliitis, and sacroiliitis can be differentiated into ankylosing spondylitis, reactive arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, arthritis of chronic inflammatory bowel disease, and just undifferentiated spondyloarthropathy. There are limited indications for using conventional radiography due to poor sensitivity in detecting the early stages of degeneration and arthritis in the SIJ. So remember that conventional radiography is an x-ray. In a general sweeping opinion, the article notes there is no evidence for using conventional radiography in diagnosing pelvic girdle pain. For CT scans, they note that degenerative findings are sometimes found at a young age among healthy individuals. So the question in these studies is whether normal development of symmetrical grooves and ridges can be regarded as osteoarthritis. And there's no sufficient evidence to support a CT as a standard procedure for pelvic girdle pain in patients. Also, because the radiation dosage of this method is so high, they also don't recommend it. So another general sweeping opinion of this article is that there's no evidence for using CT in diagnosing pelvic girdle pain.
So next that they talk about MRIs and they note that evidence shows that MRI shows early inflammatory changes in the bone marrow and in the SIJ joint capsule. So we're going to be thinking of that ankylosing spondylitis. So while CT can also find this, only MRI is going to allow that visualization and grading of active inflammatory changes in the subchondral bone and surrounding ligaments of the SIJ. MRI is a really important tool for excluding early ankylosing spondylitis and severe and traumatic postpartum injuries. So the general sweeping opinion of this article for MRIs and pelvic girdle pain is that MRIs are recommended for discriminating changes in and around the SIJ, early ankylosing spondylitis, as well as for detection of tumors. So onto scintigraphies. I'm going to pretend that you don't know what this is because I also didn't. So it's a technique where a scintillation counter or a similar detector is used with a radioactive tracer to get an image of an organ or a recording of its functioning. So scintigraphy is used to diagnose, stage, and monitor disease. Oftentimes this is with cancer, and a small amount of radioactive chemical or a radionuclide is injected into a vein or swallowed. So again, this is called a scintigraphy. And you may be more familiar with seeing PET CT scans as these show higher as these show higher efficiency in bone metastasis detection than scintigraphy. So the sweeping opinion after all that description is that there's no evidence for scintigraphy in diagnosis of pelvic girdle pain. They then go on to pain referral maps. So pain mapping as a tool for differentiating between lumbar and pelvic pain could be used as a diagnostic tool in assessing pelvic girdle pain. Although the specificity of pain referral maps and injections is low, there are indications for using pain referral maps with the concentration of pain directly under the posterior superior iliac spine in the gluteal area or the posterior thigh and groin as a typical pain drawing for pelvic girdle pain. So the general sweeping opinion on this though is that there's not sufficient evidence to recommend pain referral maps as a standalone diagnostic procedure. On to injection techniques for pelvic girdle pain. We've had the articles on this recommending fluoroscopic guided injections being the gold standard for SIJ pain and this article seconds that opinion. However, in general, injection techniques are not the gold standard for diagnosis of pelvic pain. So while there is a gold standard within the technique of providing them, that doesn't make it the best for diagnosis. So the sweeping opinion is that there's insufficient evidence to use local SIJ injections as a diagnostic tool for pelvic girdle pain. Now for diagnostic external pelvic fixation. And this is going to sound aggressive because it is aggressive. We're talking about an external fixation with that trapezoid Hoffman frame. Most people see these on ankles. So in two studies on pelvic girdle pain patients, the external fixator reduced and relieved and improved walking ability. The external fixator reduced the movement in the SIJ in 10 patients to about 50%. So three independent studies showed that the preoperative application of an external frame fixation before a fusion surgery can be helpful for decision-making concerning surgery. I think that's fair. If you're debating a pretty serious surgery, this is an alternative 
that's a pre-surgical option. Of note, application of the frame should not be used as an alternative for belt and should only be considered when all other treatment modalities applied by specialized professionals have failed. And there are obviously very limited studies on this, so they note that randomized trials are needed. If you want a sweeping opinion on this, the authors agree at this time that there's no evidence to support the use of an external frame fixator in diagnosing pelvic girdle pain. So now let's get into treatment for pelvic girdle pain and their opinions on differing treatments based on multiple different research articles. So first they looked at physical therapy in a really general sense. Because of the heterogeneity and the varying quality of the studies included in the systematic review, there is no strong evidence concerning the effect of PT interventions on the prevention and treatment of back and pelvic pain related to pregnancy. I think it's fair for us to have no hard feelings about the sweeping generalization because there are such a variety of modalities such as information, specific exercises, ergonomic advice, and mobilization. I still have a four to six week wait list though regardless and I bet you two too, so it's kind of hard to say out loud. Anyways, next up they looked at exercises for pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy and they looked at a bunch of studies and deduced that exercises should focus on adequate advice concerning activities of daily living, and to avoid maladaptive movement patterns. So sweeping opinion on this is that yes, they recommend exercises in pregnancy. Now for exercises for pelvic girdle pain and postpartum. This is still recommended, but they get more specific. So this is a similar opinion to one of the other articles we discussed. Their sweeping opinion was a recommendation of an individualized treatment program focusing on specific stabilization exercises as part of a multifactorial treatment for pelvic girdle pain in postpartum. This sounds like a good job for a PT to me, but who am I to deduce that? So anyways, <laughs> next up we're looking into exercises for pelvic girdle pain for ankylosing spondylitis. They found that a home exercise program is better than no intervention, supervised group PT is better than home exercises, and that a combined inpatient spa exercise therapy followed by supervised outpatient weekly group PT is better than weekly group PT alone. So yes, they recommend the use of an individualized exercise program for pelvic girdle pain based on ankylosing spondylitis. Regarding generalized individual treatment for pelvic girdle pain, they note individually tailored programs are more effective than general group training or no treatment. In their opinion, treatment should be based on the findings from an individual exam. So this opinion is actually specifically recommending the use of individualized physical therapy for pelvic girdle pain. So onto massage and pelvic girdle pain. Massage might be helpful. The working group agrees that massage could be given as a part of a multifactorial individualized treatment program, but of note, there was no evidence to recommend massage as a standalone treatment for pelvic girdle pain. Modified back school classes were next. These authors looked at two classes of modified back school education with training and ergonomic back care advice. The amount of therapy may have been too small to expect a realistic change, or group therapy may not be sufficient for effective treatment. So the sweeping opinion on this is that there is no evidence to recommend back school classes as a treatment for pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy. 
I know we talked about special pills before, and they address it here as well on a systematic review basis. So they looked at that same Oslo pillow, and they noted that there's no theoretical rationale behind this intervention, and that because the tested pillow is not commercially available, the results of this study are of minor interest. So they don't recommend a specific pillow as treatment for pelvic girdle pain during pregnancy. They then discussed just generalized information for a treatment for pelvic girdle pain, and there wasn't any evidence to recommend information as a single standalone treatment. But I think we all know as practicing clinicians that providing adequate information is considered useful in conjunction with other treatments. Okay, so stick with me here. We have a few more treatments to run through, and then I'll go over general positive opinions of the articles in case you're feeling like there are way too many sweeping and generalized opinions. So next up is manipulation and joint mopes. The results of this study included that the article indicates that manipulation and mobilization might be helpful for possible treatment of pelvic girdle pain. The studies had, however, few participants and really no control group. So in general, there's no evidence to recommend manipulation or mobilization for pelvic girdle pain. However, manipulation and joint mopes may be used to test for symptomatic relief, but should only be applied for a few treatments. Next up is pelvic belts, and the results showed that a pelvic belt may reduce mobility and laxity of the SIJ, effective load transfer through the pelvis measured by active straight leg raising, or that ASLR, had been improved by application of a pelvic belt too. So in general, there's no evidence to recommend the use of a pelvic belt as a single treatment, but a pelvic belt may be fitted to test for symptomatic relief and should only be applied for short periods. They then looked at electrotherapy and just generalized rest. In short, both had no evidence. For acupuncture, there was moderate to low quality studies that showed evidence that acupuncture seems to alleviate low back pain and pelvic pain during pregnancy. The authors note that acupuncture during pregnancy may reduce pain, but high quality studies are still needed. So onset therapeutic injections for the SIJ, and this is gonna differ from it being diagnostic to now therapeutic. I just wanted to clarify that. In two randomized controlled trials, local anesthetics in combination with corticosteroids were applied to the SIJ in patients suffering predominantly from nonspecific spondyloarthropies and ankylosing spondylitis, and the procedure led to pain relief after one to six months in 60 to 88% of the patients. So big picture, these are under fluoroscopy or with CT or MRI guidance, and local injection appeared promising in patients with inflammatory diseases. So these authors note that they recommend intraarticular SIJ injections under imaging guidance for ankylosing spondylitis. Now onto radiofrequency denervation. There wasn't a lot of great research on this. They note that radiofrequency denervation needs further research before recommendations can be made. If you're unfamiliar, this is a minimally invasive procedure used to treat central neck or back pain caused by arthritis or injury to the facet joints. So this procedure is also called RFD, radiofrequency neurotomy, or radiofrequency. So there is no evidence to support the use of radiofrequency denervation. 
Next up, there's prolotherapy, and I wasn't really familiar with this, so I'm sorry that I just have the same assumption for everyone. So if you're very familiar in treating patients who have had this, it sounds interesting. Full disclosure, prolotherapy is considered an alternative treatment, so it's not regulated by the FDA and it's not covered by insurance. It's an injection treatment used to relieve pain where the healthcare provider, and they didn't specify which providers, so I'm not very sure, will inject a small amount of an irritant into the body. Typically, this is dextrose or sugar solution that's most commonly injected. The claim is it relieves pain by jump-starting your body's natural healing abilities. So they might use an imaging tool like an ultrasound to guide the injections. And this is not a one-injection deal either. Typically, people are getting three to six injections, and these run $300 to $600 per injection. Most people getting this have diagnoses like arthritis, fibromyalgia, DDD, and low back pain. So this article notes that prolotherapy actually didn't show any benefit compared to local saline injections. So sweeping opinion, no evidence to support prolotherapy. They cover pharmacological treatment next, and there aren't studies on pelvic girdle pain and farm treatment. They notice in clinical practice, the medication for pelvic girdle pain should not really differ from the medication for acute nonspecific low back pain and will likely not change until there's more research to support that. The authors recommend pharmacological treatments to follow the guidelines of acute nonspecific low back pain. So surgery is covered next. They go over a few different surgical interventions, but most focus on SI fusion. So of note, there's no evidence-based criteria to follow for surgery of pelvic girdle pain. So it's strongly recommended that physicians with extensive knowledge of the condition perform sacroiliac fusions within a scientific protocol. So another sweeping opinion for surgery, specifically specifically those SI fusions, is that there's no evidence to recommend them at this time. The last thing they touch base on is preventative measures. And there were two RCTs of moderate to low quality that investigated the effect of treatment aimed at preventing pelvic girdle pain and low back pain during pregnancy. No effect was found on prevention of the incidence of pelvic girdle pain or low back pain. And I realized that this is about as vague as it gets. They make a sweeping recommendation that they can't recommend any specific preventative measures. Okay, so it is definitely take-home point time. Regarding etiology and risk factors, there's strong evidence to support about 20% of pregnant women experience pelvic girdle pain. Pelvic girdle pain is a specific form of low back pain that can occur separately or in conjunction with low back pain and a new definition of pelvic girdle pain is recommended. Risk factors for developing pelvic girdle pain during pregnancy are most probably a history of previous low back pain or previous trauma to the pelvis. Diagnosis take-home points include that the following tests are recommended for clinical exam. For SIJ pain, that P4 test, Patrick's Faber test, palpation of the long dorsal ligament and Ginsey-Lenz test, For pubic symphysis pain, palpation of the symphysis and modified Trendelenburg's test of the pelvic girdle. For a functional test, ASLR. 
Diagnostic imaging does not support x-rays for pelvic girdle pain with exception to ankylosing spondylitis pelvic girdle pain. There's no recommendation for local SIJ injections as a diagnostic tool for pelvic girdle pain. For treatment of pelvic girdle pain take-home points, these are a few things that you're likely aware of and already doing. They recommend individualized exercises in pregnancy. They recommend focusing specifically on stabilization exercises for control and stability as part of a multifactorial treatment postpartum program. And they recommend intraarticular SIJ injections under imaging guidance for ankylosing spondylitis. So I guess I lied because you're likely not doing that one. So that's going to do it for this article by Vlimi et al. in 2008 on pelvic girdle pain and the European guidelines for diagnosis and treatment of pelvic girdle pain. We're actually going to be hanging out with Vlaming again for our next article, which was published in 2002 on the possible role of the long dorsal SI ligament in women with peripartum pelvic pain. So one of those celebrity ligaments that I was talking about just a few chapters ago, if you're following all my podcasts. All right. So thanks for listening, and I hope to see you all listening at our next article by Pelvic People.